You are listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 6, The East Area Rapist, Part 5. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. January 20th, 1977. 11 attacks. Police deputies join rapist hunt. City police and sheriff's detectives met today to coordinate their search for the so-called East Side rapist, believed responsible for attacks on 11 Sacramento women in the past year. Officers from the two departments went through stacks of reports on the assaults and said they would work closely together in the investigation. The latest attack occurred early yesterday in the Glenbrook area of the city. The others were in the residential areas in the county adjacent to Glenbrook. The latest victim was a pregnant 25-year-old housewife who was attacked at about 4 a.m. by a man who broke a window to gain entrance to her home. Her husband was not home at the time. The rapist, armed with a pistol and wearing a mask, tied the woman before raping her. The attack was similar to others by a man authorities call the East Side Rapist. Following the latest attack, the rapist escaped in the victim's car. The auto was found about 12 hours later, one mile away in a residential neighborhood. The rapist is described as a white, 5'11", 185 pounds, wearing dark clothing, a ski mask, and leather gloves. According to authorities, the East Area Rapist has attacked his victims between the hours of 11 p.m. and 6.45 a.m. There have been no men in the houses at the time, although sometimes they have been, there have been children indicating the houses have been watched. In most cases, the man entered the houses through unlocked windows. He wears a mask and blindfolds his victims, making it difficult to get a good description of him. And sometimes he has been armed. Some rape prevention tactics are to have secure locks on your doors and windows and use them. Make sure your windows are well covered to prevent someone outside from seeing you are alone. Install burglar alarms. Form a cooperative with your neighbors to keep an eye on each other's house, houses, and for unfamiliar persons and cars. Pay attention to your dog if it barks. When leaving a building, carry your car keys in your hand so that you can rake them across an attacker's face. Check the back seat of your car before getting in. Carry a few sharp items in your purse, such as pencils or combs with metal lifts that can be used as weapons. Kick your attacker in vulnerable places, the shins or groin, and run. Cause a lot of noise, either with a whistle or a horn, and run. Don't keep a weapon in your house unless you know how to use it. January 25th, 1977 Sheriff's recommendation, secure anti-rapist locks are urged. In the wake of 14 assaults committed by the so-called East Area Rapist over the past 15 months, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department is recommending people invest in good locks for their homes. I've been recommending to people that they go to a reputable locksmith. It could cost them $100 or a little more to make their home secure, said department spokesman Bill Miller. But a lot of people think their homes are secure when they're not. A lot of people just don't have the proper locks. He noted that the rapist has entered the homes of his victims several times through unlocked windows. In yesterday's rape near Madison Avenue and Sunrise Boulevard, he came through an unlocked door. The East Area Rapist's first known attack was in October of 1975, authorities say. Since then, he has raped 12 and attempted to rape two women in the East Area of the County and City. 
The women have ranged in age from 16 to the late 30s, according to Miller. He said the sheriff's department has six detectives who have been working on the case full-time for several months. And after last week's rape of a Glenbrook woman within city limits, the city police put three detectives on the case. The two departments have coordinated their efforts. The other attacks have occurred in Del Deo, Carmichael, Rancho Cordova, and Citrus Heights. Authorities said the rapist, who has always struck between 11 p.m. and 6.45 a.m., apparently has watched the homes to make sure no men would be present. Occasionally, there have been children in the houses. He has also threatened some of his victims with a weapon. In yesterday's attack, he told his victim he had an ice pick and, as in many other instances, wore gloves and tied up his victim. He also often wears a ski mask and blindfolds the women, making it difficult to get a good description of him, and, in some cases, the attacker has raped his victim several times. The man is described as being between 5 foot 8 inches and 6 feet tall, 25 to 35 years of age, clean-shaven, with dark, neatly cut hair, and a medium build. February 1st, 1977. East Area Rapist Claims 15th Victim. No ID. The East Area Rapist assaulted his 15th victim in as many months early Monday morning in Orangevale, just two miles east of his last attack exactly one week ago. Sacramento Sheriff's Department spokesman Bill Miller said authorities are convinced it is the same man because of his method of operation. The victim, a young woman in her early 20s, told officers she was awakened in her bed sometime between 3 and 4 a.m. and gagged with some clothing. Her head was covered with a pillowcase and she was tied with her pajamas, said Miller. He said she was not raped, although she was sexually molested. As in his other assaults, the man threatened his victim with a weapon. She said she could not see one, although he threatened to shoot her. The woman's parents, both of whom were in the house at the time of the attack, did not hear anything, Miller said. In his other attacks, there have never been any men present, although occasionally there have been children in the homes. As is his pattern, the man remained in the house for about two hours, although he did not leave the bedroom. Also typical was his entry through an unlocked window to the woman's rear bedroom. Last week, the man raped a 25-year-old woman in the Madison Avenue Sunrise Boulevard area. He entered her home shortly after midnight through an unlocked door. A few days earlier, he had raped a pregnant woman in the Glenbrook area of the city near Highway 50 and Watt Avenue. His other attacks have been in Del Deo, Carmichael, Rancho Cordova, and Citrus Heights. His victims have ranged at age from 16 to the late 30s, Miller said. Both the Sheriff's Department and Police Department have detectives working full-time on the investigation. The rapist is described as being between 5 feet 8 inches and 6 feet tall, white, 25 to 35 years of age, clean-shaven with dark, neatly cut hair, and a medium build. February 7th, 1977. East Area Rapist? Another woman molested. A housewife was attacked and raped early today at her home near Crestview Drive and Madison Avenue in what authorities say could be the 15th assault in the past 15 months by the East Area Rapist. The method of operation is similar to the East Area Rapist, said Sheriff Spokesman Bill Miller. However, Miller said that because of the continuing investigation into the rash of attacks, no other possible evidence linking the East Area Rapist to the latest investigation would be released. The woman in her early 30s told police a man entered her home shortly after the husband left for work at 6.45 a.m. He bound her hands and feet with strips of cloth and raped her, an officer said. He left the house at about 8 a.m. The woman was alone at the time. Authorities said that the man wore a mask and gloves. In the 14 attacks attributed to the East Area Rapist, the man wore a mask and gloves. Officers said the woman, still bound, was able to crawl out of the house. Her screams were heard by neighbors who found her at about 8.30 a.m. The man was described as white, 5 foot 8 to 6 foot tall, and about 160 pounds, the same general description of the East Area Rapist. Last Thursday, officers arrested William Paul Boren, 24, of Fair Oaks in what they earlier called the 15th attack by the East Area Rapist. 
However, authorities later said that the alleged attack apparently was a copycat. In that incident, a woman in her 20s was assaulted in her home in Orangevale last Monday. The attacks attributed to the East Area Rapist have occurred in Deldeo, Carmichael, Rancho Cordova, and Citrus Heights. The victims have ranged in age from 16 to their late 30s. In this morning's attack, officers said the man entered the woman's home through an apparently unlocked sliding glass door. March 8, 1977. Rape may be linked to the series. A 37-year-old woman was tied up and raped in her home early this morning, and Sacramento County Sheriff's deputies are investigating the possibility it may be the 16th attack by the so-called East Area Rapist. The M.O. method of operation is the same as the East Area Rapist, said Sheriff's Department spokesman Bill Miller. The woman who was alone in her home east of Watt Avenue between Robertson and Whitney Avenue. April 15, 1977. 18th rape victim in East Area. The East Area rapist early today attacked his 18th victim, a 19-year-old woman who was raped in her home near Madison and Manzanita Avenues. The woman was assaulted between 2.30 and 4 a.m. and called Sacramento County Sheriff's officers shortly afterwards, said spokesman Bill Miller. Miller would not otherwise detail the early morning rape. It's the same M.O. as the others, he said. The rapist forced his way into the woman's house, but Miller refused to say what kind of force was used or where the entry was made. In the other 17 rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist since October 1975, the victims have been attacked between 10.45 p.m. and 6.45 a.m. by a masked or hooded man who forced his way into their homes. The rapist has tied and gagged his victims before sexually assaulting them. He has never attacked while there was a man in the home, although he has raped some of his victims with children present. The women have ranged in age from 16 to their late 30s. Six of the rapes have occurred in a relatively small area between Folsom Boulevard and the American River north of Watt Avenue. All have been in the Carmichael, Glenbrook, Daldeo, and Rancho Cordova areas. The rapist has been described as 25 to 35 years old, white, between 5 feet 8 and 6 feet tall, clean-shaven, with dark, neatly cut hair. After this morning's rape, sheriff's officers in the area stopped a car nearby and took the driver to headquarters for questioning. After a lengthy investigation, they released him. March 20th, 1977. Rapist hits 17th victim. A 16-year-old Rancho Cordova high school student apparently became the 17th victim of the East Area Rapist when she returned to her darkened home alone to pick up some clothes before spending the night with a girlfriend. The victim's family was away for the evening, sheriff's deputies, deputies said yesterday, and the intruder was waiting inside. The attack occurred about 10.45 p.m. Friday. He was either waiting for the girl or was there to burglarize the house, said Bill Miller, a sheriff's department spokesman. He declined to comment on the status of the investigation. The victim Friday night was a sixth in a relatively small area between Folsom Boulevard and the American River, north of Watt Avenue. The girl who lives in the southwest section of Rancho Cordova said the man was wearing a mask or hood over his head when he came out of one of the rooms in the back of the house after she entered. He tied and gagged her before raping her. He remained in the house until 11.40 p.m. and escaped out the rear of the house when the victim's friend came to check on her. The girlfriend called the sheriff's department. Detectives said the rapist entered the house by forcing a door from the garage entrance. The city took several items from the house, but they were not, would not disclose what they were. May 3, 1977. Rapist claims 19th victim after tying woman, mate. The East Area Rapist attacked his 19th victim this morning after awakening a Glenbrook couple and holding them at gunpoint while he tied them and covered their heads with blankets, police said. The rapist, who pried open a sliding glass door to enter the family's home, didn't awaken two young children who slept through the ordeal, police said. The rapist, armed with a large caliber pistol, spent more than two hours in the house after he broke in about 2 a.m., police said. 
He slipped into the couple's bedroom while they were sleeping and pointed the gun at them when he awakened them, said Sergeant Gerald S. Backerich. He led the woman to an upstairs living room where he raped her, Backerich said. The rapist who wore a ski mask found and stole some cash as he later ransacked the entire house, Backerich said. The incident started so quickly in the darkened house that the man did not see the invader, police said. The man caught only enough of a glimpse to see the gun and the mask, they reported. This was not the first in the series of rapes where a man was in the home, Bill Miller, a spokesman of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, revealed today. There was another case in which a man was tied up before the rape, Miller said. He wouldn't, however, say which case this was. The East Area Rapist, whose first attack was recorded in October 1975, has generally victimized women who were alone. Many of them were married women, whose husbands were away from home for the night, detectives said. In June of 1977, officers were starting to get wind of the ear ahead of his attacks. In one instance, a man living on Cedarhurst Way could not locate his work schedule. While he looked everywhere for the paper, he found his handgun in the nightstand. The only problem is that the gun was unloaded. Another interesting thing investigators found was tennis shoe prints, similar to that of the ear, were discovered behind the man's home. There was an issue here in that the path where the prints were found was a path that students routinely used going back and forth to school. Two days after the report of the unloaded gun, Detective Shelby came across a report for an illegal entry. He thought it might be the work of the ear and decided to investigate it. Nothing was reported missing from the home, but the residents felt that someone had been in their home. Some of their items were disturbed. For the first time, detectives were able to get an upfront and close view of how the ear prowled before striking a victim. The home where the illegal entry occurred was on Templeton Drive in Carmichael, which is a short street parallel to Madison Avenue. Shelby also noticed a shoe print carrying the same herringbone pattern on a wall just below a small window on the outside of the home. Investigators moved across the street on Cedarhurst Way. This was the opposite end of the street where the man reported his unloaded gun. Detectives started by knocking on the door of the second house from the southeast corner of Cedarhurst Way and Templeton Drive, which fits the pattern of the attacker's preferred home. Once investigators knocked on the door, an attractive single mother opened the door. They asked her about recent events in the area, to which she recounted that she would return home many times to find their front door unlocked, and sometimes slightly ajar. At other times, she thought that the items in the home had been slightly moved. She even recounted a time that their large houseplant had been moved, to which she was sure someone was in their home. She also reported an unusual amount of hang-up phone calls. After informing the single mother of what was likely awaiting her, and how she could protect herself, Shelby and team moved across the street. They found an area of heavy foliage where they saw s- several shoe prints and cigarette butts. Another neighbor reported seeing a blonde man walking along the fence, which was six feet high, but the man was shorter than the fence. Shelby had a hunch that the ear may have access to police radios, so they did not broadcast this information. A possible prowler was reported one night, to which Shelby arrived to investigate. Once on the scene, the woman was surprised because she had heard what she described as a police radio prior to Shelby's arrival. She had thought they were already there. Coincidentally or not, the ear did not return to Cedarhurst Way after the authorities had been there. We get an up-close and personal look at, you know, from a police just, you know, standpoint of, of what it's like to be stalked and prowled before he actually attacks the homes in this case. 
which is pretty interesting for police at, at this point in the case because while they knew his MO and kind of had an idea of how things would go, they never to any point so far investigated the prowling activities and seen his pattern of where he stands and hangs out and, and watches before he actually hits somebody and he never never hits there. And so that begs the question, does he have access to a police radio? Is he somehow getting his information from the police before, you know, or during their transmission of this information and, and is able to stay a little bit ahead of them that way? What do you think? Do you think he has access to that information? Because it sure seems like he does. Well, I think just by, just by what the what, what the lady witnessed there right at the end, what we described, she said she heard a radio before they had even arrived and she thought they were already there, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. So that kind of goes to confirm that he does have a police radio and he's monitoring very closely their movement and their communications. Yeah, and it's fascinating because, you know, if he does have a radio and he's out there listening, I mean, that just gives him a million different ways he's able to escape when they start coming. Like he can find out where they're at and hear them radioing back and forth and kind of understand how they're investigating him in order to make adjustments to the way he's doing certain things to either get away or get into houses or to prowl and stalk and knows what neighborhoods they're in and where they're sitting and watching. (laughs) Like it's insane. The amount of information you probably could glean from this chatter over the radio, especially at this time, you know, technology wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. So, you know, police probably really took for granted the fact that they had these radios and like, you know, Hey, we got these radios. They're not thinking anything of it. You know, aside from, yeah, they know someone could tap into their radio feeds, but they're probably, you know, the occurrence of that's probably pretty rare. Right. And there was also a lot of really good evidence left behind where they detected possible prowler activity. The shoe print on the wall underneath the window and the one guy who checked to see if his gun was still in the nightstand because things had been moved around. It was in the nightstand, but he, he took it one step further and noticed that it had been unloaded. How freaked out would you be? crazy because that's like the the typical trick that they play in some movies where hey i'm going to give this guy a gun he thinks he can shoot me and has an upper hand and all of a sudden he pulls the trigger and click nothing's there so that's like a real life scenario of that happening i mean how crazy would have been had that attack transpired the guy goes to get his gun and he thinks you know i'm going to shoot this guy once and for all and put an end to this and click nothing yeah i mean your heart would sink if if you even made it to the to the gun, you know, because as soon as you go for it, he might shoot you. But knowing that it's empty, he might let you think it's not <laughs> and let you go for it. Exactly. Yeah. And that would just, I can't imagine how your heart would sink at that point. Not to mention, you know, just <laughs> it's already a traumatizing enough situation. But then you go to get your gun, you think you can defend yourself and you really can't. No kidding. Well, let's uh, let's dig in here. Attack number 23, September 6, 1977, the city of Stockton, on Portage Circle. The home was quiet until a sliding glass door which connected to the bedroom of the soon-to-be victim started making noise. By the time the female sleeping in her bed had a chance to wake her husband, a flashlight beam shined straight into their eyes. The intruder warned them to shut up or he would kill them, and instructed them not to move. Get on your stomachs, he said. The all-too-familiar routine was going to follow. The female was instructed to bind her husband. Then she was bound as well. The husband was retied by the ear to ensure no tricks were being played on him by the female victim. The assailant began asking them where their money is. All he wanted was food and money. Then he asked the husband where his wallet was and if there was anyone else in the home. 
The husband responded with the location of his wallet and informed the intruder that they had two children in the home. The ear, as maniacal as usual, threatened that if he didn't comply, he would chop up the kids and bring them their ears. The East Area Rapist left the room for a few moments. The couple could hear him preparing the living room, closing the drapes, doing some rummaging. He returned to the room shortly thereafter. With a knife to the husband's throat, he threatened him, telling him to shut up or he would kill him. Next, he took the victim from the room. She was already sleeping naked, so she asked for her robe when the ear began to escort her away, to which he draped it over her. He escorted her down the hall with a knife to her throat and then left her in the living room on the floor. Next, he returned to the husband with his dishware of choice and placed it on the husband's back. He threatened to kill him if he heard the dishes rattle. The male victim heard what sounded like objects in a large bag being toted around with the assailant. Next, the ear returned to the living room, where he had staged the room with his now-signature towel over a lamp to dimly light the room. He began to lotion himself and rape the victim. He would return to check on the husband several times, threatening him with a gun to his head as well as a knife on several occasions. He would return and rape the female victim, and she reported that he possibly used a dildo on her at one point. The couple's six-year-old daughter would wake up at one point during the attacks, and the ear would tell her he was playing tricks on her mother and ask, If she wanted to come watch, she just ignored him, went to the bathroom, and then back to bed. He would tell the victim that he saw her at the store and just had to break, just had to have her. He also mentioned he only lived a few blocks away and needed things for his apartment like soap, towels, utensils, and televisions. The Stockton police arrived at the scene around 4 a.m. to which they discovered that the husband and wife had been bound with the husband's shoelaces. Pry marks were found on the screen door to the sliding door on the patio. The screen door had been locked, but the glass door had not been. They found a bottle of Fuller Brush Lotion in the bathroom sink and a Pepsi can in the backyard. A jar of peanut butter was left on the kitchen counter, which was from the intruder removing it from the refrigerator and eating it himself. The victim had seen the ears carry bag, which he carried and appeared to look like a doctor's bag. The neighbors reported the usual prowler activity, strange cars, dogs barking, hang-up phone calls, shoe imprints matching that of the ear, which was now identified as a size 9.5 Converse All-Star. The police found a knife at the foot of the bed that the husband could not identify, and they also found another knife nearby that was the husband's. The female had a pair of pantyhose in a drawer that had a finger hole punched into the crotch. Many items were stolen as well. Five silver dollars, wedding and engagement rings, tie pin, cuff links, and a man's onyx ring. The six-year-old daughter was placed under hypnosis and described the assailant as wearing a purple t-shirt, brown ski mask, black mittens, no pants, a belt with a sword on the right side, and a gun holster on the left. The sword was most likely a machete. She also said that she saw a watch on his right wrist and they had a tattoo of a bull, possibly of the Schlitz bull. He was also reported to have had a bad smell, not B.O., but a bad odor. So we have a new description of him, and in this case, they do describe another bad odor, but this time they say it's not B.O., it's just something that just smells bad. I don't know what that would be. Um, I don't know. What do you think about, you know, the new description, putting the child under hypnosis? The fact that she even sees the guy and doesn't even, like, <laughs> doesn't even flinch, just like heads back to bed. Yeah, it, especially with that, with what he's wearing, it, the the crazy outfit with the mask and no pants. I mean, especially the no pants, it's like, I would think a child would be a little bit more shocked to see something like that. Yeah, and then when she describes him as carrying a sword. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know she went under hypnosis for the description piece of it, so maybe she was just so out of it she didn't really realize what was going on. But, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I just can't imagine like waking up and just like seeing some strange dude in my house with like a ski mask, no pants, a uh, quote unquote sword and a gun, and then just like <laughs> walking back to bed, no big deal. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, to a child, a, knife, a, a big knife could, you know, be assumed to be a sword. You know what I mean? A larger hunting knife could look like a sword. So, I mean, it could just her perception of what she saw at the time. Oh, for sure. I mean, she's only six years old. So. Right. And then to the bad smell, I don't, I don't know. Does the guy, wasn't B.O., is he not wiping properly or does he have really bad breath or, you know, what's the story there? <laughs> I don't know. I have some theories, but I want to save it till later. It ties into something else that we'll find out a lot later in the story. So I have a, I have a theory as to what it is, but I don't want to give it away for those of you who don't know the case that well and don't know kind of how this sort of wraps up later on. And I will dig into that later. But the other thing that, um, you know, we didn't really mention yet was this was his first attack since May. And it's now, I believe, September. So he took that little bit of a break. And, you know, no one really knows why. Uh, There was a theory that he, you know, may have been injured or he had too much heat on him from the police. And so he was scouting some new areas that were a little bit less patrolled and those kinds of things. And it kind of goes back to the radio discussion we had. So if we know that he, if we think he had access to a, a police scanner or whatever and was able to listen to the chatter of the police, then he knew probably a lot about how they were staking him out and where they were staking him out. And he probably didn't feel that comfortable that he could get away with it anymore. And he seems to be fairly intelligent, at least intelligent enough to know when not to do things and when to do them, because obviously he's attacked 23 times at this point and still hasn't been caught. Yeah, right. And There is potential there for the injury because, you know, during our last episode, I don't know if it was the last one or the one before that, but we talked about the hospital visit that was suspicious, right? Where where he had fallen and and got hurt. So maybe he decided to lay low until he was feeling better and felt like he was at, you know, 100% could perform attack, you know, and not be physically limited in case he did run across an altercation where, you know, he had to be ready, physically ready if something did happen out of the ordinary that he wasn't ready for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was our last episode, and it was at the very end where he hops the fence and they believe that he may have injured himself and had the suspicious encounter at the hospital. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on here as to why he may or may not have struck. Possibly he had, you know, gotten a new job or was taken away from his home, you know, home base area for a period of time to go do something. I mean, there's a lot of theories as to why. So uh, no one knows for sure, but... You know, it's just interesting. He did have that brief lull in, you know, from May to September. Let's continue on with attack number 24. October 1st, 1977, Sacramento, Tolomne Drive. Shut up. Don't make a move or I'll kill you. I want your dope. I know you have some, and I'll look and find it. The intruder stood there in the doorway for some time. The assailant shined a light in the face of a couple that were asleep. It was around 1.30 a.m. He was wearing a dark snow hat a nylon stocking, which was tight-fitting, a flashlight in his left hand, and a revolver in his right hand. An interesting encounter was about to occur. Sitting next to the boyfriend, leaning against the corner of the wall, was a rifle. The suspect shined his light over to the rifle, then back to the boyfriend. He shined his light back to the boyfriend as if to challenge him. Some reports state that the year said to the boyfriend, go for it. The boyfriend decided not to go for it. The intruder instructed the pair to roll over and get on their stomachs. Then he tossed shoelaces to the end of the bed. He instructed the female to bind the male, and then bound the female himself. He moved back to the male and bound him tighter. 
The 17-year-old female that had been at her boyfriend's house that night, as she had had a medical procedure done two days before and was not feeling well. The female victim was blindfolded and then moved to another room. He returned to the bedroom to place a tray and a salt shaker on the boyfriend's back. The intruder left and returned to check on the boyfriend a total of eight times. The assailant raped her twice and threatened the couple several times by putting a knife or gun to their, to their head and stating he would kill them. When investigators arrived, they found out that the couple had been arguing a lot that night. At one point, the female was driven back to her apartment but later returned to the home. Another interesting piece that was uncovered was that the shotgun that was leaning against the wall had been unloaded and the bullets had been neatly lined up under the bed. The boyfriend reported hearing a doorbell at one point. The intruder was gone for a while but came back. The female reported the same thing, but that she had also heard other sounds. She also reported that when he was in the kitchen, she heard her carb horn beep twice. After a few minutes, it beeped again, then the doorbell rang five times. Then someone knocked on the window. She also said that she could hear muffled voices and that one sounded like a woman, but she couldn't recognize them. The boyfriend worked his bindings loose, got to a pocket knife in his pants, and freed himself. He pulled a revolver out from between the mattresses, and then went looking for the suspect. He freed his girlfriend from their bindings, but then he went out in the back and fired a shot into the air to attract attention. The female described him as 5 foot 9, 170 pounds, between 21 and 35. His breath and body odor were bad. He was wearing a black vinyl or leather jacket with four pockets below his waist, his shirt was either dark blue or dark brown, and his gloves were black leather. So we have another case of the uh, the old unloaded weapon trick here. And he was basically daring the the male victim to go for it. And that, again, setting up that movie-like scenario that you were talking about earlier. But what I want to ask you is, do you think that he really, really, really wants to kill somebody? Like... And he's just trying to give someone an excuse because to this point, no one's really given him a good excuse. I mean, some of the women have fought back a little bit with him. No one's really challenged him yet. Right. Maybe. And maybe he's wanting that challenge. It, it certainly sounds like it. I mean, it's not much of a challenge, though, if he's unloaded the gun and the guy grabs it and he gets to shoot him. But what I found interesting was he didn't know that there was a revolver between the mattress and it, you know, tucked away in the bed, but it's not like that boyfriend could have reached in there and pulled it out quick enough to not be shot himself. So it was kind of a moot point, but he did have it after the fact. Yeah. And that, you know, you bring up an interesting point. There was another gun. He may have known about it and just didn't think it was an issue for him. I mean, I don't know. I feel like if he did know about it, he probably would have unloaded it just to be safe. Right. You, you never know what's going to happen. You know, it, if somehow he gets knocked down or something and the guy gets a second to to get to that gun and you knew it was there and didn't unload it, you would be a little bit pissed at yourself if you're the intruder in this case. But yeah, I I found that fascinating as well. And and the other interesting thing here is that they do attack a duplex. Not they, but you know, him. And I guess they is a interesting um Freudian slip there because during the attack, um the victims reported hearing additional voices and things and car horns beeping and what sounded like a woman. And, you know, there's a lot to unpack with that, but there's not much to really say because, you know, it's just the hearsay of the two, you know, victims here. And the only thing that I can think of to even rationalize it is, first of all, this, I don't know about the outside noises, but I do know that the, um, you know, the way that this guy's voice has been reported. Some people think it's high pitched and sounds like a woman. And I don't know if he was mumbling to himself and talking to himself like he does and how he's confused other victims that there might be multiple people. And in this case, 
he was just talking to himself in a high-pitched voice or something. Like, you know, there's reports that, I don't know if they report it yet at this point, but I do know that it gets reported that people think he might be schizophrenic. And so I think he starts playing to that because obviously he follows his case in the media. And so I don't know if he's like just trying to act a certain way to, you know, throw a red herring out there and throw people off the trail a little bit. What do you think about that? That was my thought. It's been reported several times that he has a higher pitched voice. So what if he's just, you know, throwing his voice a little bit higher even to, you know, to really throw somebody off? I think a lot of the stuff that this guy does is on purpose. Maybe he is schizophrenic, but maybe he has enough awareness of, of the situation to, you know, throw as many things out there as he can to possibly confuse the victim ahead of time. He could have been mumbling in a lower voice, threw his, you know, voice a little bit higher, run around to the side of the house, the car's unlocked, maybe the door's already open, reach in, you know, the, the series of events he could have, he could have fabricated a lot of that stuff to, you know, make somebody think there's more than one person getting ready to attack them. Maybe they didn't even think it was attack. Maybe they thought it was noise from the neighbor's house. You know, who knows? But I, I, I think it goes back to him fabricating a lot of this to try to throw them off as much as possible. Yeah, and and he also lives in a the guy in this attack and the female. They also live in a duplex, and so you know, who knows? Was there another voice that was maybe somebody else who was in the other residence next door? I mean, I'm sure investigators probably tried to figure that out, right, and try and determine what was going on. But and typically, when you're in a duplex, and I don't know for a fact in this case, but duplexes are usually near other duplexes or condos, you know, and. So I don't know, maybe there was just other noise that happened to be out in the area near where they were at the time. Granted, it's a strange hour in the morning, but, you know, it's highly likely that, you know, you could have had other people out there doing things. So. Sure. Yeah. Very, it's very possible, I guess. Yeah. I, maybe, maybe we'll learn more about that is, is it, you know, with it being a duplex, it, it makes it that much more complex of a scene for, for the ear to go and do this attack. Because I know duplexes are just simply essentially two apartments stacked one next to the other, so you you know you run making a ton of noise, you run the risk of the neighbor next door like, "What the hell, this is a weird hour, like you said, and making them suspicious if they're home, yeah, exactly, and you know based on the hour of the day, they probably were home. It's just a matter of you know was it actually somebody next door that was out there you know making a bunch of racket for whatever reason or you know, who knows? You know, it's interesting. The car horn beeps a few times, though. Like, you know, I don't know what that's about. But that one, that one I have a hard time explaining. You know, the victim says that she heard her car horn beep five times. Now, that's strange. So I can't imagine this guy would have an accomplice, but you never know. Stranger things have happened, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Attack number 25, October 21st, 1977, Sacramento, Gold Run Avenue. I have a 357 Magnum, and if you don't do as I say, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. Those were the first words heard by the married couple lying in their bed asleep. The intruder tossed shoelaces over to the bed. Tie him up. If you don't tie him up right, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. Put his hands behind his back, and be sure you tie him tight. The usual procedure followed. The male was bound tighter, and the female was bound as well. The assailant went to the kitchen and returned with rattling dishes in his hands. He placed them on the husband's back. The ear then took the female to the living room again. The victim was aware of the ear and realized exactly what was going on. The attack continued as usual. The ear returned to the husband on several occasions and threatened the husband by placing a knife or gun to his head. At one point, he threatened to cut the fingers off of the husband. 
The woman was raped twice. After the second instance, he said to her, My buddy's in the car waiting. Tell the pigs I'll be back on New Year's Eve, stuttering on his words in the process. Then he went into the kitchen as usual. However, he was sobbing rather than eating. It's not totally clear to me, but it appears that he walked away after both the first and second rapes and began crying. He did manage to compose himself, at least enough to partake in some food from their kitchen. He was also not reported to force her to hold his penis or refer to it in any way, which he usually did. Another interesting thing that he did to this victim is treat her gently as reported in the previous attack. The investigation after the attack revealed that the victim described his penis as fairly large and round, with a very small head. She was certain he was circumcised. To this point, authorities believe he was not circumcised. They found that the ear had entered the home by prying open the garage door. Two weeks before, the 13-year-old daughter that lived in the home reported, Upon coming home from school one afternoon, she noticed the garage door was ajar. She told her mom, but it was dismissed as being from another family member. Phone calls were persistent right up to the attack in this case as well. He was described as a white male, 5'10", in his 20s, fit with no belly. He spoke through a forced whisper through clenched teeth. He also did not cut the phones. So the big takeaway here is the sobbing and crying act he, he's putting on here. So again, I, I talked about his potentially schizophrenic behavior in the last uh, attack. And so here we have it again. And it seems like he's really playing into it in this case. I don't believe he was really crying at all. I think he was he's playing it up and he's he's starting a new his new thing like his his last thing for a while and i think he still carries this through a little bit i'm not sure if he even did in this attack or not but i know i'm pretty sure he does after this is he talks about his van and taking food to his van and all that stuff and talking about how he camps on the american river i think the sobbing act is another one of those like i'm gonna pretend to cry now and you know give you the police something else weird to think about you know i think that's absolutely what's happening and you know i can't think of any other reason why he would just start sobbing it sounds like it was almost uncontrollable sobbing he had to they actually noted that he had to compose himself before he came back you know in between attacks or doing whatever i don't know maybe he was crying because they didn't have shit in their fridge i don't i don't know but i it, to me it sounds it sounds like he was putting on an act for sure yeah absolutely and um i just you know i i don't know some of these little things he does you know I start to wonder if when he's doing them, you know, sometimes I wonder if these are copycat cases I got accredited to him somehow. But then, you know, being so many years removed, I assume that the police and the investigations that they've done with a lot of the information that they don't put in these reports or withhold from the public is probably confirming that it is him at this point. So, you know, like this is one of them where it seems like if the guy was truly sobbing, you know, maybe it was a copycat person who had these desires and copied the East Area Rapist's MO and then decided that during the attack this wasn't a good thing and that he regretted it. But I I lean more on the side that it's him and that this is just an act to try and throw police off. Well, you bring up an interesting point there about being copycats because, unfortunately, throughout all of these attacks, we've had quite a few descriptions of the man's junk. <laughs> and I, I had a hard time not chuckling reading that last one, to be completely honest. But, you know, we, we said in last episode, the lady gave a very good description of his uh, male parts. And I made a joke kind of in, you know, in passing of he's packing a roll of quarters. But this time the lady says it's big around with a tiny head. So that's a little bit different description. 
what I'm trying to get to, and, and in all seriousness, is it a copycat? Is it somebody that tried to copy his MO as much as possible and, you know, has a breakdown mid-attack, loses their composure? I mean, it, it's possible, I guess, is what I'm trying to throw out there. It is. And the other thing that you have to think about with all the victims is it's all about perspective. And some women report him as, not, as being like average size, like normal. So, you know, depending on who they've been with and how much experience they have, you know, in the sexual field, they may have encountered people with smaller penises. And then the hysteria rapist comes along and his seems either normal, average, or better. So you just don't know, you know. And, you know, they're coming from a point of perspective. And, and we don't know what their perspective is, what their past history is. I don't know if investigators delved that far into it, especially at this point in time. It's an embarrassing thing. These women are embarrassed as hell after this happens to them, you know? Who wants to talk about this stuff? And especially back then, it was even worse. You know, women did not want to admit that this was going on. You know, it was a sign of weakness. They felt bad. They felt like it was their fault. You know, they blamed themselves, all these different things, right? And so, you know, you, who knows what perspective these women are coming from, right? And, uh, you know, I just, that's what I always wonder, you know, when you get a description like this, even a description of the, the attacker, you know, they're all like a little bit different. You know, some women have said he was five foot seven. Some say he was six foot. Like that's a pretty big difference, you know? Um, so it's just one of those things. Who knows? It, it's very strange. Yeah. That, and that's a great, that's a great point. I can't imagine being the victim of an attack like this and having to, to try to you know, think back on the attack and give a very detailed description of what happened and a detailed description of the attacker himself. It, it, I, I can't imagine, you know, what that would be like. And like you said, it's perspective. It could be past history, people that they've encountered before and, you know, throughout relationships that they've had in the past and trying to compare this attacker to some of them. Not that it's a good comparison, but, you know, just from a physical attribute perspective, to describe the guy, right? You know, I don't... Yeah. And the other thing is, like, you know, when this is all going on, like you're kind of saying, is some of these people have kids in the home. And so you want to, you know, compare... You know, you're, you're you're making these comparisons and you're trying to gather these descriptions, but really in the back of your mind, you're just worried, is he going to hurt my kids or hurt my family? And the husbands are separated from the wives. And, you know, so obviously, you know, the, the husbands are freaking out because they don't know what's going on with the wife. But the wife's probably alternately freaking out because she's getting attacked, but also like he disappears and goes and checks on things. And it's like, okay, so what's he doing now? If he's doing this to me, what's he doing to the other people in the home? So for the fact that these women have to come back and remember and try and give descriptions and, you know, do all those things, it's, oof, that's a tough task, man. I, I don't, I wouldn't want to be in any of their positions. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, exactly. It's just something I can't get my head around and even think that how is that even possible so i mean kudos to the ones who could provide very good details i guess but you know it sucks that they have to be put through that oh yeah absolutely they're my heroes i mean these women are so brave and all the stuff they've they've dealt with and the confrontations they've had to deal with and everything that they've had to do and then to be able to give descriptions of this guy to pay attention enough to catch certain glimpses of him to give enough information for composites that get out there it's just, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, I commend them for that because quite honestly, I couldn't imagine, I have no frame of reference for that, you know, and how you would feel in that situation. I can only imagine it wouldn't be good and that I would do a piss poor job at the description because I'd be so red with anger and fear, you know, and just wouldn't even know what was going on. So, I mean, not enough is said about that. Yeah, that that's, 
100% for sure. Attack number 26, October 29th, 1977, in the city of Sacramento on Woodson Avenue. A young car salesman and his wife had just recently moved into a newly constructed home, one of the only ones on the street that had been completely finished. The young car salesman had been in the hospital two weeks prior to October 29th. While he was in the hospital, his wife frequently visited him while also moving their things into their new home. It was about 1.45 a.m. on October 29th when the young salesman felt a tapping on his foot. He opened his eyes to find a man holding a gun and a flashlight. The voices and light awoke his wife. He told the man, Don't move or I'll blow your fucking brains out. I know you've got a gun in here, and if you move, I'll blow your fucking brains out. The gun was in the nightstand next to the husband. However, it was later located under the bed and unloaded. He tossed shoelaces onto the bed and told the female to tie up her husband. The wife only tied one wrist, either on purpose or by mistake, to which the intruder called her a bitch. I'll blow your brains out if you try something like this again. Then he gave her more bindings to tie him. The ear returned to the room after a few moments. He had been rummaging around the house for a while and came back and accused a female of trying to unbind her husband. He cut her ankle bindings and forced her from the room. He put a gun to her back and marched her down the hall. He threatened to kill her if she tried anything. In the living room, there was already strips of towel on the floor. He ordered her to lie down on her stomach and then blindfolded her and bound her feet. He told the wife all he wanted was some money and some food for his van. The wife offered to cut him a check, to which he responded, Shut your fucking mouth. He left the room and then returned again, straddling the woman, placing his penis in her hands. He told her to play with it and do it good. When she tried to alert him that she had no feeling in her hands, he told her to shut up or he would cut her ear off. He moved her and instructed her to suck it. Then he raped her. He also tried to sodomize her, to which she began screaming. He repeatedly switched between raping and sodomizing the woman as she screamed out in agony. He was getting off on the fear. He was back in the kitchen again, and the victim could hear him sobbing. I'm sorry, Mommy. Mommy, please help me. I don't want to do this. He was sobbing, and the victim felt it was genuine. Mommy, I don't want to do this. Someone please help me. The male victim could hear the assailant in the other room saying, Mommy. It sounded like he was genuinely hyperventilating. A new phone service had been recently installed in the residence, and there was one hang-up call. In order for someone to have that number, it would have been quite interesting for them to get it so fast, if it was in fact the ear. There had been indications of prowlers in the neighborhood, and on two occasions, the couple arrived home to find the garage door open. The intruder was described as 5'8 to 5'10. His legs were very white with light-colored hair. His clothes were corduroy pants with burgundy socks. His jacket was nylon, and his tennis shoes were badly worn and dirty. The victim also felt his gun holster when she made contact with him. It was on his right side. The scent dog tracked him to a home on 4400 Whitney. The scent stopped right where a dump truck usually parked overnight. The male that lived there was questioned and eliminated. A witness also claimed to have seen a man pop up from the dump truck with a bicycle in his hands around 6.30 a.m. and head east on Whitney. Mask and all. Investigators also processed the victim's upper body for fingerprints but did not find anything. Witnesses also reported seeing strange vehicles. A 1963 or 64 Ford Falcon in the neighborhood over the last few weeks was one of them. There had been several attacks since the ear had left around dawn, which was attack number 13. Again, you have the uh, that game he's playing with the guns where he's going in and unloading them in advance and then daring you to go, go get it. Uh, to me, that screams that he wants to escalate this to murder. He just isn't quite ready yet, but he's looking for a reason. Give me a reason. Go get your gun, then I'll shoot you. You know, that kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, what do you th- what do you think? Yeah, oh, I think I think you're absolutely right. It, he goes. He does go back to the the ruse of the van again, though. I just want some money and some food to take back to my van. He he circles back to that. Yeah, and that's you know, 
he keeps that one for a while and i I found it fascinating that he he brought that back up because it hadn't been reported in the last couple of attacks. Not to say it didn't happen. There's nothing I came across that said that he he was saying those things again. You know, it's it's really interesting, and that's why we give the details of this case in such graphic details because there's a lot of things that are persistent, you know, throughout. And I think it's important because again, we've talked about this before that you know while some could find that disrespectful, and I guess it is to some degree, but at the same time. Uh, truly understanding the nature of these attacks, I think, is really important. And understanding the psychology of these, you know, this maniac, I think, is important. And I think a lot of this case is lost when you don't go into detail because you're holding back. And I felt like a lot of the reporting on this case, you know, a couple years ago when I first came across it, was erring on the side of caution and not getting into the extreme details in most instances. And I found that I think that's why this case never really blew up as much as it should have. You know, there's a lot of people that didn't know about this. And I was one of them. I mean, I had been loosely following true crime for quite some time and I'd never heard this case until Case File did a series on it, which was fantastic by the way. But that was the first time I'd ever even really heard of it. Yeah. So yeah, to to some people who like loosely follow true crime like I did up at that at that point, and this wasn't one of them. You know, you knew Ted Bundy, you knew Son of Sam, you knew um, Ed Gain, you knew all those you know famous cases. But this one, I mean, the, the amount where attack twenty six hundred ransackings. Now the ransackings they weren't quite sure about until later, but you know all those things being connected and nobody really. I mean, it wasn't that popular. I mean, people knew about it, but had been kind of long forgotten and i think this is kind of why yeah and going going back to what you said about trying to give as much graphic detail as we possibly can for each of these attacks it to me it it, it almost feels like a puzzle you know you're putting something together here even though a lot of the details we cover you know there there's the mo is almost the same for every one of these the victim's descriptions are always you know within a certain range they're always fairly close to one another uh, you know, with a few slight discrepancies. And then you, you come back to this stuff. We've been talking about this possible schizophrenic side for quite a while now. You know, it's been a couple episodes ago since we've talked about him talking to himself and breaking down and saying, Mommy, I'm sorry for doing this, and, and you know, this and that, or whatever, when he has a breakdown. But this attack in particular, I think, is the first one where we've, the victim said it sounded genuine. You know, there was, it sounded like there was for real hyperventilating there. And maybe to me, what I translated that to was it sounded like he was getting off on the fear of the victim. She was actually screaming when he was attacking her. And is that schizophrenic side and, you know, that breakdown side triggered by that, that huge adrenaline rush that he gets when he gets that gratification from an attack? Is that what triggers it? Because, you know, if you're in a situation where, you're pissed off at somebody or somebody just angers you to the point of no return. Your adrenaline can make you say and do things you wouldn't normally do, right? You know, you, some people physically attack others. Some people attack verbally, but that adrenaline can really trigger stuff. And I wonder if that isn't the case here. Attack 27, November 10th, 1977, Sacramento, La Riviera Drive. D. Wardlow woke up to a banging noise. The patio sliding door was closing, and suddenly a flashlight beam illuminated her eyes. All I want is your money, she heard. The intruder ordered her to lie down on her stomach, and he proceeded to bind her. Dee complained that her hands were bound too tightly. The intruder responded by saying, 
Do you want me to cut off your fingers? Next, he asked her, who else is in the home? If you lie to me, I'll slit your throat. She said the only other person in the home was her daughter. He left the room to go tie up the daughter. The intruder entered 13-year-old Margaret Wardlow's room. He shook her awake. She responded by telling the man to leave her alone. She was still in between consciousness and sleep. This isn't a joke, he hissed at her. Get on your stomach and put your hands behind your back. She forcefully refused, telling him no. The ear did not like the challenge from the young girl. He told her, do what I say or I'm going to stick you with this knife. I'll slit your throat and watch you bleed to death. Then he pushed the knife up against her neck and behind her ear. Do you want me to cut off your ear? He growled. He told her, all I wanted is your money, but she said she didn't have any. He tied up her hands and feet and then went to the bathroom. Margaret was able to work her ankle bindings loose, but the intruder returned before she could get up. He told her, if you move again, I'll kill your mother. The attack occurred in a condo similar to the townhouses where the kitchen was upstairs. The ear moved upstairs for a few moments, and then she could hear him coming back downstairs. Margaret had obsessively followed the coverage of the ear in the news, and she knew what was coming. If the ear was going to her room, he was going to rape her mother. If he was headed to her mother's room, he was going to rape her. Throughout the other attacks and the media coverage, both her and her mother agreed that they were not in the age range of the ear's typical victim, but it appears they were wrong. The ear entered the mother's room and placed dishes on her back. If I hear these plates jiggle, you'll be dead, bitch. All I want is your money and food. Do you hear me? She sat silently. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Finally, she replied yes. The assailant returned to Margaret's bedroom. He was carrying strips of towels to blindfold and gag her. He untied her feet and straddled her back, placing his penis in her hands. Grab it. Squeeze it, he said. Do you know what this is? She replied no. Then he asked her, have you ever fucked before? No, she replied. He ordered her to roll over, but being defiant, she asked why. Roll over or I'll kill you. She said she didn't want to. Finally, he forced her over. He repeatedly tried to rape her, but for whatever reason, he was unable to. Although she reported he did have an erection. He gave up trying and went about the house only to return a few moments later. A breeze from the area of the front door was making her cold, and she was shivering. So he placed a sleeping bag over her and left the house. I want to play a little uh, clip of an interview that Margaret Wardlow was doing. And this will, she was the youngest victim of the East Area Rapist. And, you know, her uh, attack here obviously is quite interesting. And she speaks a little bit about that and how she was, you know, following the case and she was a little bit defiant. So um, take a listen. Margaret Wardlow was 13 when she first learned about the man terrorizing her community. I had huge fascination in the case because there had been so many attacks. I remember reading one article three times over and saying, Margaret, there's no more words on that page. At the time, Margaret and her mother, Dolores, a single mom and California government employee, believed they were safe. My mom had this saying, she'd always say, I'm too old and you're too young. My mom was 55 at the time, of course I was 13. So we really thought we were off the radar. Until the night of November 10th, 1977. I was awoken with a flashlight in my face. I couldn't make out the individual that was holding it, but he told me to, to turn over, lie on my stomach. He was gonna tie me up. Once he had tightened up those ligatures, I knew at that very moment, this is most likely the East Area Rapist. He blindfolded me, he gagged me. At a certain point, he started coming with the dishes. 
and I knew exactly what was going to happen. If he came into my room, he was going to rape my mother. If he went into my mother's room, he was going to rape me. And I heard him go into my mom's room. And I just mentally prepared myself. So that was Margaret giving a little bit of a, no, I guess, intro to what had happened to her there. And, uh, you know, she was the youngest victim of the Easter rapist, but he wasn't, you know, able to actually complete his rape of her. And her defiance, I think, paid off in this case and, you know, scared him away. Yeah, I think that's the case as well. Their defiance paid off and scared him away. But it, it sounds like they were a little bit complacent, you know, thinking that their age ranges didn't match. It's good that she was educated to the fact, you know, of what his typical MO was. But unfortunately, in this case, maybe they weren't on quite as heightened awareness as they should have been, you know, for what was going on in the area. Yeah, no kidding. You know, not much else to say besides, you know, good for her. I mean, she was defiant and apparently it, I don't know if she was also, you know, being how young she was, if that kind of also was a non-starter for him or if, if she had complied, if he would have been able to complete what was going on. But, you know, that's amazing. A 13-year-old having the courage to stand up to this maniac. Absolutely. Attack number 28, December 2nd, 1977, in the city of Sacramento on Revelstock Drive. Around 11 p.m., a complaint clerk at the sheriff's department answered the phone, as usual. I'll commit another rape tonight, the caller said. That was all that was heard. And the caller hung up, and the call was not recorded. In the early morning hours, a woman awoke to a flashlight in her face, and the words, Hush, or I'm going to gag you. There were several threats made to the woman, including the threat to kill her little boy asleep in the room. However, that boy was really a little girl with short hair. The woman's husband, an advisor to the National Guard at the Sacramento Army Depot, was away and not expected back until later the next morning. The woman noticed that he had shoelaces in his hand and that she did not see a gun or a knife. He ordered her down the hallway, and when they reached the living room, she was told to get on her knees. The assailant tied her hands behind her back and ordered her to lie down. Then he pulled her underwear off, stood over her for a moment, but said nothing. He proceeded to tie her ankles together as she cried. The ear warned her to be quiet or he would gag her. The woman said that she would not be able to tell her daughter to go back to bed if he gagged her. It was around 11.45 p.m. when the events began to unfold and as things were going down inside the home, outside there was a group of kids making a lot of noise. The victim believes this was making him a bit nervous. He would repeatedly open the drapes and peer out the window to see what the noise was about. At one point, the ear said, You think you're smarter, but I'm smarter than you are. No one really knows what that meant or who it was directed towards but he was very angry when he said it. The victim reported hearing a vehicle, which she assumed was a van, start up and drive away. She worked her way over to the phone, knocked it off the cradle, and phoned her neighbor for help. When police arrived, they found the only door that was not locked was the sliding glass door to the patio. She was very adamant that it had been locked. However, the spare key was usually under the mat, and it had been gone for a few weeks. She assumed her son had misplaced it. The victim also received hang-up phone calls for three weeks prior to the attack, which also occurred after 2 p.m. The victim also reported that in October she had left the home for a while and had left a door unlocked. When she returned, the door was locked. She also noticed a jar of pickles was moved to a different shelf in her refrigerator. She also discovered a photo of her was missing. Again, several neighbors reported strange vehicles in the neighborhood prior to the attacks, one of which was a white station wagon with black wheel tires. Another person reported seeing a strange male with light brown hair, about 25 to 35 years old. Two females sharing a house nearby on Key Street reportedly received a phone call where the caller said, You are next, three times, then hung up. A missed opportunity. A man that reportedly fit the description of the ear was known to frequent a 7-Eleven store at 10785 Coloma Road in Rancho Cordova. 
police felt the tip might be credible enough that they should investigate it. The suspect would typically wear a shiny black jacket with an image of Vietnam embroidered on the back, which was common for the time. He would visit the store around 2 a.m. and go browse the pornographic magazines. Sergeant Daly, Carol Daly's husband, ordered two of his men to drop what they were doing just before midnight and head to the 7-Eleven dressed in plain clothes and stay out of sight. The officers didn't do as instructed, and only one of the officers threw a plain shirt over his police uniform while still wearing his police officer's pants, a giant stripe down the leg and all. Also, they did not stay hidden and out of sight. Several times over, they would approach the counter. The other officer remained in an unmarked car most of the night. The clock struck 2 a.m. at the 7-Eleven store and the phone rang. A caller on the other end said, let me talk to the cops in the back. The clerk responded, there are no officers in the back. Don't give me that shit, the caller said. The clerk then told the officer he had a call. When the officer took the phone and said, hello, who is this? There was a chuckle on the other end of the phone, and then the line went silent. No one ever saw the man wearing the Vietnam jacket ever again. Not long after that, Sergeant Daly, who would patrol in his free time, noticed a car moving very slowly around Dalcetto Drive in Chardonnay. The sergeant was fairly certain that the ear lived in Rancho Cordova, so he felt his extra time patrolling was worthwhile. He didn't want to spook the strange car, which was a primed white two-door Datsun. The sergeant, not wanting to spook the driver, did a U-turn a little bit after passing, to which he saw the car turn from Dalcetto onto Chardonnay and then onto Lambresca, where it would ultimately disappear. It was less than a minute from the time he spotted the car to giving a brief chase before he realized it was gone. Now, I think this gives a lot of credence to the police radio uh, theory here. Because if that was the ear, and he happens to call the 7-Eleven store, whether or not he frequented the store, he may have heard them talking about going to the store. So you still don't know if it's actually the guy in the jacket, or if it's coincidence that no one ever really saw him again. But what you do know is that he was probably listening to the police scanners and heard them talking about doing this, and then... When they did it, he called in at 2 (laughs) a.m. and uh, left him a little message. Why do you think that they would talk about a plan like this over police radio and a scanner? And why it wouldn't be behind closed doors and like laid out basically with radio silence? That sounds kind of dumb to me. Uh, I don't know that it happened that way. You know, I'm just kind of theorizing here, to be honest with you. And maybe they didn't lay out the whole plan that way, but maybe something went out over the radio, a little chatter that kind of gave away what they were doing right before they did it. Or when the sergeant ordered, you know, maybe he ordered them to go at a certain time over the radio and then the rest was implied. I mean, I'm not sure how it all went down exactly. So I guess I'm kind of at liberty here making things up. So if, if someone, a listener does happen to know how that encounter actually goes down, with the full detail of like the order of operations, I'd be super interested in hearing how that actually played out. But yeah, I, I found it fascinating that, um, you know, he ends up, you know, giving a ring to the Seven Eleven store. Another interesting spin to that could be, did he possibly come to the store and think, you know, he was going to go in there and look at the magazines and he saw these two bumblefucks in there that didn't follow orders and they, they pull a regular shirt over their uniform and still have the police pants on. You know, he, he walks by the store, peers in, see these guys roaming around. I was like, oh shit, go back and get my car and then make the phone call, right? Yeah, it's possible. Again, I have a little bit of a theory about this that uh, I need to save till later. So I'm making note of that and I'll save it till later because there's some information I think that comes from later on that might tell you why he knew this was going on if he actually showed up. Like to your point, if he had showed up there, he may have been hip to what was going on based on some other things, but I'm going to save that for later. So I guess that's a tease. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll do that and we'll move on here. Excitements crave. 
On December 11, 1977, three copies of a poem allegedly written by the East Area Rapist were sent to the Sacramento Bee, KVIE, Channel 6, and the mayor of Sacramento's office. All three copies were identical. The poem was written as follows. All those mortals surviving birth, upon facing maturity, take inventory of their worth to prevailing society. Choosing values becomes a task. One self must seek satisfaction. The selected route will unmask character when plans take action. Accepting some work to perform at fixed pay but promise for more is a recognized social norm, as is decorum seeking lore. Achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame. Leisure attempts excitement seeking. What's right and expected seems tame. Jesse James has been seen by all, and son of Sam has an author. Others now feel temptations call. Sacramento should make an offer. To make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile, just now I'd like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. Your East Area Rapist and Deserving Pest. See you in the press or on TV. So it's a terrible poem, but one line in there that I really wanted to talk about was that the mafia lord, the wife of a mafia lord. It's been speculated that that might reference attack number 21 on the Italian man. And that that might have been, you know, that was a the the wife of the mafia lord. That people are speculating that that may have been what that was in reference to. And at the time, no one knew the man was Italian. You know, no one really brought that up. That wasn't a thing. But you know, years later, we find that out. So, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, the other thing that people mentioned was that might not have really meant anything. It might have just been because during the seventies, like a lot of mafia movies were popular, including The Godfather. And stuff like that. So it just might have been something that was kind of in in someone's mind during that time, just based on pop culture. Right. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, choosing values becomes a task. Oneself must seek satisfaction. The selected route while in mass character when plans take action. I think that line is really telling. And if this was really from the East Area Rapist, what's really fascinating about that line that stuck out to me was that, you know, to me, he's saying like, you know, you need to pick and choose what you're going to do. And he's seeking his his satisfaction. His satisfaction comes from these rapes and terror. And so then it says, you know, basically that will unmask your character. And then when you, you know when you make that plan. So essentially, to me, looking back at this, if if you can truly say that's from him, he's what he's saying is like you know he had to make a choice because he was getting off on you know he knew he would get off on this kind of thing, and so he chose that path. And by choosing that path, it unmasked his character, which his character turned into the East Area Rapist. That's what it says to me, at least. I don't know about you. No, I I completely agree, and I I think the interesting part of the poem to me was where. You know, he he's wanting them to make him an offer to tell his story. He calls out two famous people. You know, Son of Sam has an author. Jesse James has been seen by all. He he's wanting that notoriety. Oh, big time! He's, he's big yeah, time. he's seeking it hardcore. Yeah, most of these guys do. You know, a lot of these guys do that kind of stuff. They want the notoriety. You know, there's that's you know a big component of some of these serial offenders is that they want the notoriety. You know, they want to be in the news. You know, you see these mass shooters. A lot of them. They want to be famous. And I think I mentioned before where I live around, you know, not even five miles from my house, there's a middle school in my school district where a kid came and he was going to shoot up the school and he had a gun and he accidentally shot himself in the bathroom instead. He didn't mean to. It was an accident. But they found on his phone later that he had written notes in his phone talking about how he planned to become famous. Right. Yeah, it's 
And it's crazy to think that these guys want to be famous, but, you know, I, I don't know the exact statistics, but a lot of times they end up either killing themselves or being shot by police. So trying to take that martyr status with them, I guess, but really it's just, it's just sad that that's what they seek and are willing to die for it and kill others. That's right. Well, join us next week as we roll into 1978 and the terror of the East Area Rapist continues. Stay safe. is just around the corner and what better way to celebrate the spring season than with a Miki Couture blanket. Whether you're gathering with family for an Easter egg hunt or just enjoying a quiet day at home, Miki blankets are the perfect addition to your Easter festivities. Made with ultra soft and luxurious materials, these blankets will keep you cozy and comfortable while their stylish designs will add a touch of spring to your day. And with a wide range of colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Minky blanket for everyone. So this Easter, make your day even brighter with a Minky Couture blanket. Head to MinkyCouture.com now and find your perfect blanket just in time for Easter. Happy Easter from Minky Couture.